1: Welcome to this episode of Live Mike. I am Lee Lonsberry. Episode number one hundred and fifty five. Pretty good. We are going to cover a lot of issues today. We're going to start out by looking at the governor's challenge to get our seven day rolling average under five hundred under five hundred positive cases of the the coronavirus. That is a goal he has set out. And he when he laid it out initially, we'll get into that in just a moment. When he laid it out initially, he said, that we would like to get that rolling average under the 500 number so that we don't need to take more drastic measures now I think uh, reading between the lines you and I would probably be pretty safe in assuming that those more drastic measures uh, equate to a statewide mandate Now, that's not the case right now that sets us apart across the country but but over the next few days uh, if we don't get our seven-day rolling average under 500 and that, then we might be facing something like that. And if I'm honest, I don't know if there's much we can do today to get the seven-day rolling average under 500 by August 1st. Now, we may have already done what is necessary. We'll find out. Uh, in about half hour's time, uh, I expect to have today's numbers. So maybe we can pull it off today, but we then need to maintain it through August 1st. We're going to get into that uh, State epidemiologist Dr. Angela Dunn had some more comments, and I'll give you a little spoiler alert right now, some optimism in terms of our ability to get under 500. So that's where things stand on the coronavirus front right now. A uh, tangential matter, of course, is the, the reveal uh, from Davis School District of their reopening plan. We will spend some time just after two o'clock speaking with uh, Dave Noriega. You know him very well, a uh, host here on KSL News Radio. He has children in the district. He uh, and his family, they are not all too happy with these plans. I have posted the announcement in full. It's a, a big document presented by the school district outlining. How the school year this year uh, will proceed. Very basically, there will be two days in person, three days remote learning. They're going to use the first letter of the last name of the student to break them up into different groups, uh, determining ultimately when you are attending school. Those are the basics. All the details, if you'd like to read them, uh, and I encourage you to do so, make your way to my Facebook page, Lee Lonsberry. Up in the right, you'll see the Live mic logo. Navigate your way over there. Uh, the most recent posting is the information released from the Davis School District. So have a look at that. I ask a question there as well. Do you have students in the Davis School District? And what do you think about this plan? So if you, if you do, if you fit that category, and if you have strong feelings, share them, please, on Facebook with me. And just after 2 o'clock, as we speak with Dave Noriega to get his feelings, I will also share all that you have to, to say as well. Now, one of the big items today that has my attention is a, it's a hearing, a congressional hearing, which is taking place right now in Washington, D.C. This hearing is of the uh, House Committee on the Judiciary. There is one witness, they are speaking to one individual, and it is the Honorable uh, William Barr, Attorney General for the United States, speaking on a wide range of issues. Uh, in fact, uh, this hearing, it's going on now. Let's let's bring the audio up and, and just dip in for a moment and see what's going on. Over a piece of territory
2: uh, where the people in there have not selected them as the government and try to exercise sovereign authority. That's an outrage. And, and you know, we saw people handing out guns to... Uh, People to uh, quote keep the peace and so forth. It was anarchy there.
3: Your office has already charged several violent protesters with federal crimes. Can you just briefly elaborate on those crimes?
2: Well, they're, they're the, the whole gamut. I think I think we've had 224. They were on the gamut from throwing Molotov cocktails uh, to uh, you know assaulting a police officer, that kind of thing.
3: Thank you, A.G. Barr. I just want to say that I I think, and I don't know if you agree, that Chaz and Portland are, are really like political experiments. They really show us what would happen if we fully embrace the radical ideology of the social justice Democrats. And now, according to Democrats, it's the summer of love. According to the congresswoman that represents Seattle, it's a peaceful protest zone. Attorney General Barr, in reality, these cities are experiencing violence, chaos, and, and frankly, just anarchy. So I think this political experiment has showed us that the liberal, social justice, Democrat-style government has failed. Would you like to comment on that, Attorney General Barr?
2: Well, when I was first being going through confirmation, I expressed concern about violence getting into our political system and we'd seen some this intolerance and attacking people and i was very worried about that and how we've seen it sweeping through the country like this and i hope
3: the democratic
1: party takes a stand against
2: the violence
3: thank you and you're my time
1: all right, we'll step away back. from the, the, the hearing right now taking place in Washington, D.C. You just heard uh, William Barr responding to some questioning from a Republican representative from Pennsylvania. I'll tell you what, this hearing has been going on for hours and hours, and it's, that, that's the, the, the standard operating procedure for many of these hearings. Uh, if you can remember uh, other examples, uh, Hillary Clinton, I think, faced questioning for some eight hours, uh, and it is likely that today William Barr will face uh, an equal Amount of time uh, in the hot seat, so to speak. And as you know, too, what is happening now is the these members of Congress, both on the Republican side and on the Democratic side, they have they have scripts from which they are operating and they have lines they would like to fill in with comments from. Uh, William Barr. And it's pretty much a, a contest to see who can get uh, either, you know, who can get the most supportive line out of the witness uh, to support their narrative. You understand how that works? And you, you've seen it uh, time and time again, and we are seeing it in this hearing today. Now, there is an exception to that. And that exception takes place when the witness delivers uh, their own unprompted testimony. Most often it happens at the very beginning of these hearings, and William Barr has done just that. So in a moment we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to dedicate some serious time to walking through the comments delivered initially in his written testimony that he delivered uh, in front of the Committee on the Judiciary just this morning. It is not him answering questions. It is him describing exactly what he has observed, uh, what he feels, and what he thinks ought to be done moving forward. It is uh, uh, an unadulterated analysis of the situation. And depending on your politics, you may hear me, you know, share in this attitude and say, uh, excuse me, Lee, uh, William Barr is just a puppet for the president. How dare you? No, no, no. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I see William Barr as the adult in the room he is uh, the one who is tasked with a- analyzing you know these legal matters he is tasked uh, with bearing the responsibility uh, for protecting federal law and we will see him explain exactly why he takes so seriously that responsibility, how he sees it being violated across the country, and what he feels is an appropriate federal reaction uh, to that in this nation. And we're going to do so uh, just after the break. I mentioned, though, that we would be speaking about Uh, Governor Herbert and Dr. Dunn, and what they view as uh, a really good reason to think that we can meet this mark and meet this challenge of getting our seven day rolling average under 500. We'll have to come back to that, Uh, but I'm optimistic, they're optimistic, and if you and I stay this course, we're going to maintain this plateau we're experiencing right now in terms of positive cases and in terms of hospitalizations, and we will be on the way towards, on the way towards. A return to normalcy. Quick break. When we return, we're going to take a close, close look at the thoughts and comments shared just this morning by the Attorney General of this nation, William Barr. That's ahead on Live Mike. I'm Lee Berry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back. I am Lee Berry. You are listening to Live Mike. Uh, right now, we are we're monitoring a hearing which is taking place uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Representatives, and in that hearing, Attorney General William Barr is testifying. He is testifying before the, the, the Judiciary Committee, and he's being asked questions about the protests which are taking place uh, around this country, also the vandalism and riots um, and, which are um, taking place. And uh, in just a moment, what I want you to hear is uh, an exchange between... Uh, Val Demings. You remember Val Demings? Uh, She uh, is a Democrat, represents a portion of Florida. She spent uh, a number of years in law enforcement, Uh, in fact, 27 years, where she uh, was, at the end of her career, the chief of police of the Orlando Police Department. In fact, the first woman to lead that department. And uh, I have it here for you. And if I'm honest, I'm kind of working out some uh, technical Uh, things. And I... I want to be able to play it for you, uh, but while, while I figure that out, let's go to the live uh, version of the hearing right now. So then in a moment, we can go back in time, listen to Val Demings. Here is uh, what's taking place right now in the House Judiciary Committee. This is uh, uh, Attorney General Barr responding to questions from Representative Armstrong. No, not at all.
4: Um, how, is this how, how is this going for re- re- recruitment, morale? How are they doing? I, mean, I generally want to know,
2: how are they doing? <laughs> Well, I think that AP story, uh, you know, gives you a feel. They, they feel that's their duty and they feel that's where they have to be. A number of them are from that area. Uh, but they're extremely tired and, you know, we've had to rotate in some more. We're put in some more people because they're very, very tired. And you make mistakes when you're
4: tired. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's an important part because I think one of the most amazing parts of this whole thing, it started with under 30 agents there. Now it's still under 100. 61 nights in a row they defend against a, a siege. Fires burning down these things. You know what's the most amazing thing? They get up every morning and that courthouse is still running. Yep. They're still conducting the federal government's business. So I'm going to say something that I think should be, should be said a lot more often. Tell them thank you. Tell the courthouse personnel thank you. Tell the clerks thank you. Tell the prosecutors thank you. Tell the judges thank you. And if 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 you can handle it, can you tell the public defenders thank you too? Because they're still conducting the business. They do this every single night. Are they getting sleep?
2: The marshals aren't are having a difficult time because their demonstrators go to the hotel. They also go from hotel to hotel uh, because the demonstrators try to disrupt their sleep at the hotel.
4: And it, there's a difference between a protest and a riot. Every night at some point in time in Portland, it turns into a riot. Eventually, when you wake up the next morning and you know what's going to happen again, then we need to figure out a way to stop it. Yeah. And then just one last question. Why would we have to negotiate a ceasefire with a peaceful protest?
2: You're, uh, correct. But why would you – know, that's that's right. You know, well, we don't want uh, – What we would like to see, and all we would like, is what we see in the rest of the country, which is state and local law enforcement taking care of their own city and
1: taking care of the streets around the courthouse.
2: The gentleman's time has expired.
1: All right, you've been hearing uh, Mr. Armstrong, uh, Representative, questioning Attorney General William Barr. I want to go back in time, uh, just about 10 minutes, where there's an exchange I have here for you between Representative, Uh, Val Demings, uh, a possible vice presidential candidate who may be running alongside uh, uh, Joe Biden, of course, Joe Biden. Uh, She, a member of this Judiciary Committee, was moments ago questioning uh, Attorney General William Barr. And I want you to hear this uh, because, first off, I I don't want to be presenting all just one side of this. You've heard now uh, two Republicans questioning the Attorney General, uh, Val Demings, a Democrat, but also... Also, due to her extensive background in law enforcement, 27 years serving in law enforcement in Florida, the last years of that service from 2007 to 2011, she served as the chief of police of the Orlando Police Department, the first woman uh, to lead that department. So here's the exchange between Val Demings and Attorney General William Barr moments ago uh, at, in this hearing of the Judiciary Committee on the House.
0: What about those lives? And yes, Mr. Barr, uh, those lives do matter. But do you believe that police officers should be held or, or held to a higher standard?
2: Yes, and, and you know, someone mentioned my comment about we shouldn't permit resistance. We shouldn't take that as a matter of course. But I never suggest that just because someone resists that that justifies whatever is done. By thank, no means, you, thank you so by much no for that. that it because
0: does. good police officers also believe that they are held to a higher standard, so I'm glad to hear you say that. As a former police detective, I've solved many cases based on patterns of behavior, and there is an alarming pattern, I believe, that's developing. It appears, Mr. Barr, every time a U.S. attorney investigates the president or those close to him, he or she is removed and replaced by one of your friends. You have removed U.S. attorneys in the Eastern District of New York, the District of Columbia, and the Eastern District of Texas. On June 19, you announced Mr. Berman would be stepping down. Now, let me just be clear. When you told America that Mr. Berman was stepping down, did Mr. Berman tell you he was stepping down?
2: No. Okay. But, but stepping June, down is the language that I'm told. Uh, he didn't,
0: okay. He did not tell you that.
2: No, no. Okay, but, right. but it's the language we usually use to leave to okay. leave uh, flexibility as to whether whether the person is doing it on, on the June
0: loan. 20th. When asked about the basis for Mr. Berman's removal on the very day you announced he was being fired, stepping down, the president's personal attorney, Mr. Giuliani, suggested that. And I quote: "The reason may lie in the fact that Berman's office got involved in what Giuliani described as baseless investigations, sir. If that wasn't true." If you didn't remove Mr. Berman because he was overseeing investigations of the President and those close to him, why would the President's personal attorney think that?
2: I'm sorry, what what did he say and when? I didn't hear the quote. Mr.
0: Giuliani suggests that...
2: When? when
0: June 20th. June 20th. That he may have been fired because he was investigating baseless investigations.
2: Well, if he said that, that's that's nonsense. Number one... uh, Anyone familiar with the Department of Justice would say that removing a component head is not going to have any effect on any pending investigation.
0: And and I know you're aware of reports that Burma's office was, in fact, investigating the president's former personal attorney, Mr. Cohen, his current personal attorney, Mr. Giuliani, his current personal attorney's associates, and his presidential inauguration. Mr. Barr. I don't mean to
2: suggest just by my silence that, that, that I'm confirming that. That seems to be your opinion.
0: Okay. All right. Have you in any way attempted to influence or interfere with any investigation in the Southern District, including the investigations I just mentioned?
2: I've not interfered in any investigation. I've raised questions on occasion about certain matters, but uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, the, the, uh, I, the the office was satisfied with the resolution. Mr. With the resolution, your efforts
0: to remove him bypassed the normal operation of law. Now we know the OLC no, opinion indicates no, they didn't. that a sitting president cannot be indicted or criminally prosecuted. Because you made sure. Uh, president Trump understood that in your 19-page or however long application, job application. However, you are aware the special counsel confirmed that a sitting president can be investigated. You did read that in the special counsel's report. Is that correct? Yes. Given Mr. Trump's residence and former business location, the Southern District Berman's office would have decision-making authority over whether to investigate the president in himself. And you removed
2: him. I've explained why I re- why I removed
0: him. Okay, sitting here today under per- penalty of perjury, do you still maintain, as you stated in a February 13th interview, that the President has never asked you to do anything in a criminal case? Yes or no, please.
2: Yeah, no. I mean, will I confirm it? Is that no. the
0: question? No. Do you stand by your testimony? you has never
2: asked me, directed me, Pressured me to do anything in a criminal case. Okay,
0: all right. Uh, you are aware, and I think you had this conversation earlier with one of my colleagues, that the president's former attorney, Mr. Cohen, was released early from prison due to concerns of COVID-19. Yes. Okay. And why did you support uh, the decision to send Mr. Cohen back to prison? I, I didn't.
2: I didn't even know the decision to send him back.
0: Did you support it? Based after you.
1: I haven't looked into it enough, but my understanding of why it happened was
0: Mr. Barr. All
1: right, that's the end of the exchange between uh, Representative Val Demings and Attorney General William Barr. Uh, It seemed to focus, of course, on uh, the decision to remove uh, an attorney from New York City. And uh, it's very interesting. And the the background and the context of that exchange is what interests me uh, the most. And so we are, in just a moment, going to take a break. Uh, you've, You've heard the nature of the questioning that the Attorney General is facing right now. What I want you to hear and what I will play for you when we return are his uh, opening remarks. These are those that he prepared. It's his initial presentation. It is his attitude and his beliefs and his analysis of the facts uh, facing and revolving around the theme of this hearing. That's coming up after the break here on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to the program just after 1 o'clock. one o five now is the KSL News Time. I want to spend this segment walking through the opening statements made by Attorney General William Barr today. Uh, They touch on a number of relevant issues, and they also walk through facts. There uh, have been many interpretations of, of things by many different groups. Whatever side of the aisle on, on which you find yourself, uh, you can analyze these things one way or another. But when it comes to objective facts, when it comes to t- statistics and the realities of this nation, uh, the attorney general, uh, I believe, does his best to focus on those, so understand that as a theme as you hear these various clips from uh, the Attorney General as he delivered his opening statements just this morning to the House Committee on the Judiciary, which I'll tell you is continuing right now. These comments I'm about to play for you they came a number of hours ago, and since then it has been back and forth between the Attorney General and the questioning members of this House Committee, and it uh, will likely go on for a number of hours more. but now, back to the very beginning, here is the Attorney General starting his comments discussing what came after the killing of George Floyd.
2: The horrible killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis understandably jarred the whole country and forced us to reflect on long-standing issues in the nation. Those issues obviously relate to the relationship between law enforcement and the African American community. Given our history, it's understandable that among black Americans there's at least some ambivalence and often distrust toward the police. Until just last 50 years ago or so, our laws and our institutions were explicitly racist, explicitly discriminatory. It was not until the 60s that the civil rights movement finally succeeded in tearing down the Jim Crow edifice. Our laws finally came to formally embody the guarantee of equal protection. And since then, the work of securing civil rights has rightly focused on reforming institutions to ensure they better conform to our laws and to our aspirations.
1: Here, as the Attorney General continued, again, addressing these comments to the members of the Judiciary Committee in the House, he discussed the killing of black and white men by police just this year.
2: That work, it's important to acknowledge, has been increasingly successful. Police forces today are far more diverse than they've ever been. And there are both more black police chiefs and more black officers in the ranks. Although the death of George Floyd at the hands of the police was a shocking event, the fact is that these events are fortunately quite rare. According to statistics compiled by the Washington Post, the number of unarmed black men killed by police so far this year is eight. The number of unarmed white men killed by police over the same period of time is 11. And the overall numbers of police shootings have been decreasing. Nevertheless, every instance of excessive force is unacceptable and must be addressed appropriately through legal process, as is happening now in Minneapolis.
1: Now, those numbers, uh, eight black men killed by police this year versus the 11 white men killed by police this year. Of course, I acknowledge that in terms of proportion, uh, that that is not a fair comparison. I understand that. Uh, But... Uh, nonetheless, the figures presented by the Attorney General, uh, according to the Washington Post at least, uh, are reflective of what, is, what has transpired uh, this year. Now, the Attorney General does go on uh, to then address and discuss the concerns of those who are in the streets now wanting change.
2: But apart from the numbers, I think these events strike a deep chord in the black community because they are perceived as manifestations of a deeper, lingering concern that in encounters with police, blacks will not be treated even-handedly. They will not be given the benefit of the doubt. They will be treated with greater suspicion. Senator Tim Scott has recounted the numerous times he's been unjustifiably pulled over on Capitol Hill. And as one prominent black professional in Washington said to me, African Americans often feel treated as suspects first and citizens second. And I think these concerns are legitimate.
1: I think these concerns are legitimate. Don't forget that he said that. Because it's important. Because there are many who would point to those uh, in the the president's cabinet uh, or those who associate with the president in in terms of uh, political party and ideology and accuse them of ignoring certain realities. And you hear right here, under oath, before a congressional committee, the Attorney General of the United States conceding and agreeing with these claims that there is a disparity and that there is injustice. All right? On that, everyone agrees. And you've heard it here from the Attorney General. His opening testimony continued. He talked about Uh, the complicated nature of these issues, especially for police. At
2: the same time, I think it would be an oversimplification to treat the problem as rooted in some deep-seated racism generally infecting our police departments. It seems far more likely that the problem stems from a complex mix of factors which can be addressed with focused attention over time. And we in law enforcement must be conscious of the concerns and ensure that we do not have two systems of justice.
1: He then uh, takes a turn and looks at the protesters who have turned violent, discussing the slogans and unproductive responses.
2: Unfortunately, some have chosen to respond to George Floyd's death in a far less productive way by demonizing the police, promoting slogans like all cops are bastard, and making grossly irresponsible uh, proposals to defund the police. The demonization of the police is not only unfair and inconsistent with principles of All people should be treated as individuals, but gravely injurious to uh, the inner city communities.
1: We're hearing again from Attorney General William Barr, uh, his opening testimony just this morning before the Judiciary Committee. He talks next about what happens when people turn against the police.
2: When communities turn on and pillory the police, officers naturally become more risk averse and crime rates soar. Unfortunately, we are seeing that now in many of our cities. The threat to black lives posed by crime on the streets is massively greater than any threat posed by police misconduct. The leading cause of death for young black males is homicide. Every year, approximately 7,500 black Americans are victims of homicide. The The vast majority of them, around 90%, are killed by other blacks, mainly by gunfire. Each of those lives matter.
1: Each of those lives matter. After these comments about what happens when people turn against the police, the attorney general continued uh, discussing again the tactics being employed by some of these rioters. He discussed here the weapons that rioters have brought with them and how they have attacked now a federal courthouse.
2: Finally, I want to address a different breakdown in the rule of law that we've witnessed over the past two months. In the wake of George Floyd's death, violent rioters and anarchists have hijacked legitimate protests to wreak senseless havoc and destruction on innocent victims. The current situation in Portland is a telling example. Every night for the past two months, a mob of hundreds of rioters have laid siege to the federal courthouse and other nearby federal property. The rioters have come equipped for fight, armed with powerful slingshots, tasers, sledgehammers, saws, knives, rifles, and explosive devices.
1: He wrapped up his comments here by describing what is taking place in Portland, not as a protest, but as something else.
2: What unfolds nightly around the courthouse cannot reasonably be called protest. It is by any objective measure an assault on the government of the United States.
1: An assault on the government of the United States. And you heard the Attorney General just now describing that those bad actors, the ones who are showing up with these weapons in Portland attacking this courthouse, that they have hijacked the uh, cause of legitimate protesters. Again the Attorney General acknowledging that there is legitimate reason uh, to take to the streets and protest and to uh, voice your concerns and your grievances, that there are, in fact, injustices which ought to be remedied. But that is no excuse. That is no excuse for the hijacking of this peaceful movement by those who are out to cause trouble. And when they cause trouble and set their sights on uh, federal property, It is beholden to the federal government to take action and protect that property. And that's what the Attorney General is here defending today. That's what he continues to go back and forth with various members of the House Judiciary Committee in Washington, D.C. right now. I view William Barr as the adult in the room. I am grateful to him for his service, and I am grateful to him for his attitude on this issue. You've heard him explain it here. And I anticipate that he will continue to voice this attitude as the days, weeks and months go forward. We're going to take a quick break right now. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about uh, politics, but we're going to uh, set our sights on the Joe Biden camp and on the DNC uh, National Convention, nominating convention, which is uh, in store just next month. Scott Howell, a surrogate for Joe Biden, will be my guest next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio.